You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 73 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. Last week we talked about the fact that everyone in the North, Abraham Lincoln, politicians, the press, the public, pretty much everyone in the North had high expectations when Major General George McClellan was called to Washington in July of 1861 to take command of the Union's main field army. But then as summer gave way to fall, McClellan proved himself to be active and energetic in every way except engaging the enemy. By mid-October, the Army of the Potomac had 150,000 men on its rolls, two-thirds of them ready for active campaigning. But although the fine autumn weather invited some sort of action against the Confederates, McClellan left his army in its camps and contented himself with staging elaborate parades and reviews and some people began to suspect that the young Napoleon was more interested in displaying his army than using it. In certain circles, especially among the most extreme of radical Republicans, it wasn't long before appreciation of McClellan's hard work gave way to impatience at the Army of the Potomac's inactivity. And we've mentioned the radical Republicans a few times now, so perhaps it might be good to take a few minutes here and define that term. Basically, radical Republicans thought that the war should be fought not just for the preservation of the Union, but also for the abolition of slavery. Really, the radical Republicans believed that the struggle over slavery precipitated secession and war. So to their minds, it was folly to think that the Union would fight a great bloody civil war and then simply leave slavery alone. Radical Republicans were determined that as a result of the war, slavery would be removed from America once and for all as a future disruptive force. They believed that to accomplish that end, the hard hand of war needed to be applied to the rebellious southern states. And then the flip side of that position that Tracy just outlined was conciliation. Those who advocated a policy of conciliation believed that the North's goal in fighting the war ought to be the preservation of the Union, the preservation of the United States as a united nation, period. And so this camp disavowed any desire to wage war for the abolition of slavery. Rather than have the hard hand of war descend upon the wayward southern states, those who favored conciliation wanted to see the devastation wrought by the war kept to a minimum. This limited or soft form of war would temper firmness against the rebellion with restraint in how the Norse armies would wage their campaigns. The Union armies would avoid, as much as possible, any destruction of southern property or disturbance of peaceful citizens, and would follow a policy pledging not to interfere with the South's domestic institutions. And at the beginning of the Civil War, when the North was struggling with just how to deal with the secession of the southern states, the formation of the Confederacy, and the onset of war, even many Republicans favored conciliation, advocating a hands-off approach to slavery. 
On the podcast, we've already mentioned the Crittenden-Johnson Resolution, also known as the War Aims Resolution, which was passed by both houses of Congress in July of 1861, and which stated that the government's purpose in waging the war was the preservation of the Union, and pledged that the government would not interfere with the domestic institutions of any state as a result of the war. But as the military situation turned gloomier by the day for the Union, many in the North began to wonder whether they could afford to keep this hands-off policy towards slavery. In fact, there would be such a shift of sentiments in the coming months that the same resolution which passed by Congress in July would be decisively defeated when it was brought up again in December. But from the very beginning of the war, there were those in the North who were against conciliation, who were against the soft war approach. Abolitionists and radical Republicans insisted that a rebellion sustained by slavery in defense of slavery could only be crushed by striking against slavery. And those who held such views were among the first to grumble about the Army of the Potomac's inactivity throughout the late summer and early fall of 1861. For all the emphasis placed on McClellan's inaction in the summer and early fall of 1861, the Confederates in Northern Virginia were also initiating precious little positive action of their own. Much of that was because Jefferson Davis had decided to pursue a defensive strategy, but some of it was also due to the fact that in the months following the victory at Manassas, Jefferson Davis encountered severe difficulties in his relationship with his two chief field generals in Virginia. P.G.T. Beauregard and Joseph E. Johnston. Beauregard, the victory at Manassas only adding to his popularity after Fort Sumter, acted as if his fame had gone to his head and seemed to go out of his way to antagonize the Confederate president. At first, Jefferson Davis responded to Beauregard's meanness with remarkable patience, especially for Davis but their relationship became increasingly strained until soon it was entirely defined by mutual dislike and resentment for one another. And then, at first, Jefferson Davis's relationship with Joe Johnston had been good, and it seemed as if the two men would develop an excellent working relationship. During the late summer of 1861, there were many in the Southern public, as well as the press and politicians, who were clamoring for aggressive action across the Potomac to follow up the victory at Manassas. But Davis pointed out that such offensive operations involved considerable risk for the Confederacy. In early September, he wrote to Johnston, explaining, quote, I have felt and feel that time brings many advantages to the enemy and wish we could strike him in his present condition but it has seemed to me involved in too much probability of failure to render the movement proper with our present means, End quote. Well, this was a defensive strategy with which Johnston wholeheartedly agreed, but even as the two men seemed to be forging an excellent working relationship, the trouble that would soon boil over between them was already simmering. The trouble stemmed from the fact that Johnston was less than pleased with his place on the seniority list of Confederate generals. You see, when the Confederate Congress authorized the rank of full general, Davis settled on four men for that grade, and he ranked them according to their previous seniority in the U.S. Army within the branch of the Confederate Army in which they were to serve. 
and since Johnston had held a high staff rank in the old army, but was to hold a field command in the new southern army, he was placed fourth on the list that Davis drew up, behind Samuel Cooper, Albert Sidney Johnston, and Robert E. Lee. But Joe Johnston strongly believed he ought to be the ranking general of the Confederate army, so when he discovered that he was not at the top of the list, he felt wronged by Davis, and the debate that followed ruined his relationship with the Confederate president. But quite apart from the Confederate president's increasingly strained relationships with his two principal field officers in northern Virginia, as summer gave way to autumn, it was strategic considerations which led Joe Johnston to pull back his most advanced elements, which were quite close to Washington. As we mentioned in the last episode, in consideration of the growing strength of McClellan's army, on September 27th, Johnston pulled back his forward outpost nearest to Washington and withdrew to Fairfax Courthouse. And then on October 17th, he fell back from Fairfax Courthouse so that his 41,000-man army would now be concentrated back around Centerville, Manassas Junction, and the old Bull Run Battlefield. But while Johnston had pulled back the Confederate forces, which were directly opposite Washington, he'd left an outpost up the Potomac at Leesburg, Virginia, about 35 or so miles northwest of Washington. That place now represented the extreme left flank of the Confederate line in northern Virginia. And commanding the brigade of 2,800 rebel troops in the Leesburg area was Colonel Nathan Shanks Evans, who you guys will remember from his crucial role at the First Battle of Manassas. Here, at Leesburg, Evans was aware that his position was the extreme left flank of the army, and that there were no Confederate troops within easy supporting distance of him, and so Evans began to worry about a Federal attempt to envelop and cut off his command. When some skirmishing took place farther upriver, near Harper's Ferry, Evans apparently got spooked, believing his fears were coming true, and so on the night of Wednesday, October 16th, he abandoned Leesburg, taking up a new position about seven miles south of the town. Evans' movement caught the attention of Federal observers across the way, on the eastern side of the Potomac. Although puzzled as to why the Confederates would abandon an important position like Leesburg for no apparent reason, they duly reported the strange rebel activity to headquarters. McClellan responded to the report by ordering troops already on the western side of the river, down around Washington, to investigate. Those troops, belonging to Brigadier General George A. McCall's division, were to advance from Langley to Drainsville, about halfway to Leesburg. From there, McCall was to probe forward toward Leesburg and see whether Evans' movement was genuine or an attempt to bait a trap. But, significantly... Shanks Evans had not thought to inform his own superior, Beauregard, about his withdrawal from Leesburg, and so when Beauregard found out about it, he sent a message expressing his displeasure that Evans had abandoned such a significant position for no apparent reason. Duly chastened, Evans was back in Leesburg by the evening of Saturday, October 19th. Meanwhile, McCall's Federals had run into nothing but thin air around Drainsville, so on October 19th, McClellan ordered them to withdraw back to Langley the next day. But when McCall requested permission to stay an extra day, until Monday the 21st, in order to complete the mapping of some roads in the area, McClellan agreed that McCall's men could remain in Drainsville until the morning of the 21st. 
Thinking that McCall's move north might have made Shanks Evans feel threatened, and that another federal move from the east, from the river, might be enough to force the Confederates into abandoning Leesburg, McClellan sent a message on October 20th to Brigadier General Charles Stone, who commanded the division of Union troops on the eastern side of the Potomac, opposite Leesburg. McClellan informed Stone of McCall's movement north from Langley to Drainsville, and directed Stone to, quote, Keep a good lookout upon Leesburg to see if this movement has the effect to drive them away. Perhaps a slight demonstration on your part would have the effect to move them. End quote. Upon reading McClellan's suggestion that he mount a demonstration to support McCall's movement, Charles Stone, an 1845 graduate of West Point and Mexican War veteran, knew that a suggestion from your commanding officer isn't really just a suggestion and so he prepared to cross some men over to the western shore of the Potomac near Leesburg. But significantly for what is to follow, McClellan, for some reason, failed to inform Stone that McCall had already been ordered to withdraw from Drainsville. And so on the afternoon of Sunday the 20th, and then on Monday the 21st, when Stone had troops across the river, he believed McCall would be within supporting distance, when actually by Monday morning, McCall was going to be marching away, away from the action at Ball's Bluff, heading back to Langley. Just so we're all on the same page as to what's going on, a picture a map in your mind's eye, with the Potomac River running from northwest to southeast. In the upper left-hand corner of your map, near to the river, but on the western or Virginia side, is Leesburg. Down in the lower right-hand corner of your map, on the Maryland, or eastern side of the river, is Washington. Across the river from Washington is the Union Army's foothold on the northern Virginia countryside, anchored at places like Alexandria and Langley. McCall's division, down near Washington, is actually on the Virginia side of the river, so they can advance north, overland, to Drainsville, trying to figure out if the rebels really had abandoned Leesburg. But they come up empty, so McClellan orders them to withdraw back to Langley. McClellan thinks, though, that perhaps McCall's advance might have spooked the rebels, and that just maybe one more move by the Federals might be enough to get the Confederates to abandon Leesburg. So McClellan suggests that Stone, commanding the Union troops on the Maryland side of the river, up opposite Leesburg, McClellan suggests that Stone might perhaps cross the river and make a demonstration might act as if he's advancing on Leesburg from the east, just like McCall did from the south. So there you go. The only fly in the ointment is that Stone assumed once he crossed men over to the western, to the Virginia side of the Potomac, he'd be acting in support of McCall, and McCall could act in support of him. But as Tracy just pointed out, McClellan, in making his little suggestion to Stone, McClellan failed to tell Stone that McCall had already been ordered to withdraw back to Langley. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Stone received McClellan's message about 11 a.m. on Sunday, October 20th, and had two of his brigades in motion by that afternoon. One detachment moved to Edwards Ferry, while another force made its way upriver about three miles to Conrad's Ferry. A smaller party from the 15th Massachusetts moved to a point on the Maryland side of the river near to Conrad's Ferry, but directly opposite Harrison's Island and Ball's Bluff. A company of the 15th was already on picket duty on the island out in the river. Stone knew that Confederate scouts on the Virginia side of the Potomac would be watching these movements, but they might not be enough to encourage Shanks-Evans to abandon Leesburg. So in a bolder move, Stone pushed two companies of the 1st Minnesota across the river at Edwards Ferry, shortly before dusk. The Minnesota troops remained on enemy soil for only about 15 minutes before returning to the Maryland shore. In fact, it's doubtful most of the men even left the boats, but those who did flushed out several rebel pickets, enough to get word to Evans that Federal soldiers had crossed the river. But Evans knew a feint when he saw one, and he didn't respond. So by nightfall, Stone's demonstration was over. Satisfied that he complied with the spirit of McClellan's suggestion, Stone ordered most of the Union soldiers who had taken part in the operation back to their original camps. But while their comrades on the Maryland side of the river were on their way back to their camps, a patrol of Union soldiers was still on the Virginia side of the Potomac. That's because, in order to determine the effectiveness of his demonstration, Stone ordered Colonel Charles Devens to send a reconnaissance patrol from his 15th Massachusetts across the river to Ball's Bluff to see if the Federals' earlier play-acting had triggered a Confederate withdrawal from Leesburg. Devens gave the assignment to Captain Chase Philbrick and 20 volunteers. After crossing to the Virginia side of the river, Philbrick led his men to the top of the tall bluff there. The men followed a path that climbed the steep hillside, known to the locals as Ball's Bluff. Nearly a hundred feet high, the bluff was studded with rocks and covered with tangles of brush and mountain laurel. The place was named after former owners of the land, the family of George Washington's mother, Mary Ball. After reaching the top of the steep bluff, Philbrick's patrol moved cautiously in the direction of Leesburg. It was dark, the only light coming from a full moon, when the Union soldiers reached a point about three-fourths of a mile from the river and two miles from Leesburg. At that spot, the hazy moonlight revealed what appeared to be an enemy camp in the distance. 
Philbrick and his men edged closer to the camp, which appeared to be unprotected. Not wishing to press his luck, Philbrick decided he had stumbled upon an important piece of intelligence and ordered his men to fall back to the river. By 10 p.m., Philbrick was back at Harrison's Island, and he dispatched news of the unguarded enemy camp to Stone, who was downstream at Edwards Ferry. But the patrol had not, in fact, seen an unguarded enemy camp. Lieutenant Church Howe of the 15th Massachusetts later described what had actually happened. He said, quote, We proceeded three-quarters of a mile or a mile from the edge of the river. We saw what appeared to be an encampment. There was a row of maple trees, and there was light on the opposite hill which shone through the trees and gave it the appearance of the camp, end quote. So, what actually happened is that in the uncertain moonlight, Captain Philbrick had mistaken a line of trees for a row of enemy tents. Stone later wrote that, quote, A very nice little military chance seemed to have been brought out by that reconnaissance. News was brought that there was a small camp without pickets, and it seemed to me one of those pieces of carelessness that ought to be taken advantage of, end quote. Not realizing that it was his own men who had committed a piece of carelessness, and believing that McCall's men would also be moving against Leesburg the next day, Monday the 21st, Stone determined to raid the unguarded enemy camp at first light. And with that decision, the chain of errors that led to the Union debacle there along the Potomac had begun. Philbrick's inaccurate, faulty report would lead to the Battle of Ball's Bluff. On Charles Stone's orders, preparations were made throughout the night and into the early morning hours of Monday, October 21st, for a raid to strike the unguarded enemy camp. Stone instructed Colonel Devins, a 41-year-old militia officer and noted Boston lawyer, to cross the river with four companies of his 15th Massachusetts and attack the Confederate camp at first light. Devins actually took across five companies, about 300 mostly green troops. Orders also went out to Colonel Williams R. Lee, who was to march to the Maryland side of the river, directly opposite Harrison's Island and Ball's Bluff, with two companies of his 20th Massachusetts and two mountain howitzers to provide support to Devon's raid. And then Colonel Edward Baker, leading the California Brigade, received orders after midnight to march at once for Conrad's Ferry, just above Harrison's Island, and arrive there no later than sunrise. It had been just a week earlier that Baker's large California Brigade had reinforced Stone's division. Edward Baker and his brigade were a story unto themselves. The four regiments were mostly made up of Pennsylvanians, but had been tagged the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 5th California because Baker had long been associated with that state and wanted it formally represented in the Union's main Eastern Field Army. Just to make things a bit more confusing, though, Baker was actually a sitting U.S. Senator from Oregon, and he was a close personal friend of Abraham Lincoln from pre-war days in Illinois. In fact, the two men were so close that Abraham and Mary had named their second son Edward Baker Lincoln. But anyway, to get back to Stone's plan... Besides Devon's crossing at Ball's Bluff, a second crossing was also planned downriver at Edwards Ferry. 
Stone ordered Major John Mix, an old regular Army officer commanding a battalion of the 3rd New York Cavalry, to take 30 to 35 troopers across the Potomac and move out the Edwards Ferry Road towards Leesburg. Mix's assignment was to draw Confederate attention away from Ball's Bluff so that Devens would be able to raid the enemy camp and get safely back. Mix believed he and his small detachment would have completed their assignment and be back across the river by 8.30 or 9 a.m. at the latest, so he ordered the regimental cooks to have breakfast ready when he returned. As events played out, though, Mix would end up missing breakfast. By the end of the day, as the fighting raged three miles upstream at Ball's Bluff, Stone would have sent over 2,000 federal troops across the river at Edwards Ferry. At Harrison's Island, Colonel Devins had just two skiffs and a metal lifeboat with which to shuttle his raiding party across the river to Ball's Bluff. That meant that only some three dozen men at a time could make the crossing at one time. And besides the raiding party from the 15th Massachusetts, there were also just over a 100 men from the 20th Massachusetts who followed. Their job was to, pl- to deploy on the bluff with their two mountain howitzers and covered the withdrawal of Devon's men after the raiders had struck the enemy camp. Needless to say, getting more than 400 men and two mountain howitzers across the river in three small boats, in the dark and as quietly as possible, was a challenging undertaking. And it was made even more difficult by the fact that recent heavy rains had caused the river's level to raise well above normal, and so the shuttling of troops to the Virginia shore took most of the night. Once on the opposite shore, Devens consulted with Colonel Lee of the 20th Massachusetts, who had accompanied his men across the river, and Devens decided that his raiding party would attack the enemy camp as soon as it was light enough to see. Sunrise that morning came at 6.26 a.m., so Devens probably moved out around 6. But Devens soon discovered that his raiding party had nothing to raid. He found that there was no enemy camp between the river and Leesburg. At that point, had Devens decided to fall back and withdraw back across the river, the story would have ended there. But Stone had given him discretionary authority not to return immediately should he either easily drive the enemy away or find that the situation was quiet and there was no threat. And so even after discovering what y'all already know, that the supposed enemy camp had been a figment of Captain Philbrick's imagination, Colonel Devens decided to stay on the Virginia side of the river and send for further instructions. Devens sent a messenger back to Stone. After crossing the river, the messenger, Lieutenant Church Howe, who had been on the fateful Philbrick patrol the previous evening, Howe reported to Stone at about 8 a.m. On hearing Howe's report, Stone decided to turn the raid into a reconnaissance in force and ordered the rest of the 15th Massachusetts to cross the Potomac to Ball's Bluff. Devens was then to advance toward Leesburg to gauge the enemy's strength in the area. And so Howe headed back to the Virginia side of the river with these new orders for Devens. But while Howe was with Stone, fighting had already broken out at Ball's Bluff. At about 8 o'clock, Confederate pickets from the 17th Mississippi had engaged Union soldiers from the 20th Massachusetts. As the Mississippians sent word back to Shanks Evans that Yankees were across the river, a company-sized firefight developed between the rebels and Massachusetts men. After this sharp little 15-minute fight, though, the shooting tapered off, and then there was a lull of about three hours as both sides fed reinforcements into the area. 
Shortly after Lieutenant Howe had left Stone to return to the Virginia side of the river, Colonel Baker arrived to find out from Stone what was going on. As originally instructed, Baker had marched his California brigade to Conrad's Ferry, just above Harrison's Island, and he now sought updated orders. Not knowing that his information was already outdated, since fighting had already broken out across the river, Stone gave Baker command of all Union troops around Ball's Bluff, and gave him authority to order across additional forces, or recall those already across the river, depending on his evaluation of the situation. At this time, relying on his outdated information, Stone was still just thinking that if the operation continued moving forward, it would still just be an expanded reconnaissance toward Leesburg. Stone was also thinking that McCall's division was moving forward from Drainsville toward Leesburg. On his way back upriver between 9.30 and 10, Baker ran into Lieutenant Howe, who had just made yet another trip across the river, now bringing news of the initial skirmishing that had broken out. Baker thus learned of the fighting at Ball's Bluff before Stone did, and according to Lieutenant Howe, Baker said, quote, I'm going over immediately with my whole force to take command, end quote. But instead of doing that, however, Baker began throwing troops across the Potomac as fast as he could, with the few boats available, while he himself spent the next four hours trying to rustle up some more boats. During this time, he not only failed to personally go to the battlefield, but he neglected to send any orders to the units already over there. As additional Confederate and Union troops arrived at the battlefield, more skirmishing erupted. After some particularly heavy skirmishing that took place around 1 p.m., another lull in the fighting occurred. Baker finally crossed over to Ball's Bluff and met with Devins at about a quarter after two. At this time, the Federals formed a defensive line, with one wing composed of the 20th Massachusetts facing west or inland, and the other wing made up of the 15th Massachusetts facing south. Soldiers of the 1st California were moved to threatened areas. To beef up the defense, the men of the 20th dragged the two mountain howitzers up the slope and added them to the line. A short while later, another cannon, a James rifle, was also brought up the bluff. And so as the afternoon wore on, a mixed force of Mississippi infantry and Virginia cavalry was facing off against the men of the two Massachusetts regiments and the Pennsylvanians of the 1st California. On the Confederate side, Evans remained downstream near Edwards Ferry, since he thought that spot was the most threatened, and so at Ball's Bluff there was little coordination among the several rebel units involved in the fighting there, and for most of the battle each Confederate unit was effectively on its own. But the Union troops at Ball's Bluff were even less organized than their foes. Even after the 42nd New York came across the river, taking a position roughly in the center of the line, the fighting was still mostly just an almost continuous swirl of individual company or battalion-sized actions. The 18th Mississippi on the Confederate right had attacked out of a ravine at least five times, and each time they were repulsed. But it was probably during the final assault by the 18th, between 4.30 and 5 p.m., that Colonel Baker was killed. After the battle, many descriptions of Baker's death floated about but one of the most credible came from a captain of the 20th Massachusetts who reported seeing Baker rallying his men when he was shot, quote, got up again and then fell, struck by eight balls, end quote. 
Vicious hand-to-hand fighting swirled around the fallen officer's body before Union soldiers could retrieve it and send it back across the river. Edward Baker remains the only U.S. senator ever killed in battle. It was around 6 p.m. when Stone, at about the same time he learned of Baker's death, wired Washington and asked McClellan for help from McCall's division, which Stone assumed was still somewhere near Drainsville. The request took McClellan by surprise since, one, he thought from earlier reports that the fighting at Ball's Bluff was going well, and two, he had ordered McCall's division to retire from Drainsville and head back to Langley. In fact, McCall had marched away from Drainsville at 8.30 that morning, and at the time of Stone's request for help, McCall was more than 20 miles from Leesburg. As y'all already know, McClellan had neglected to inform Stone that McCall would be withdrawing from Drainsville on the morning of the 21st. Back at Ball's Bluff, at the time of Baker's death, the Federals' plight was becoming desperate. Confederates were pressing in from three sides, squeezing the Yankees back toward the steep bluff. After Baker fell, Colonel Milton Cogswell of the 42nd New York eventually took command of the Union troops desperately fighting at Ball's Bluff, and a breakout was attempted downriver through the Confederate right flank, hoping to hook up with a Federal beachhead down at Edwards Ferry. Had that been tried earlier, it might have succeeded, but by the time it was attempted, the movement by the beleaguered Yankees fell apart almost before it began. And so the fighting continued to rage. But then things came to a head around dusk when the 17th Mississippi, supported by much of the 18th and possibly also a company of the 13th Mississippi, advanced on the worn-out Federals. The Confederate advance was too much for the hard-pressed Yankees. One rebel recalled, A kind of shiver ran through the huddled mass upon the brow of the cliff. It gave way, rushed a few steps, then in one wide, panic-stricken herd, rolled, leaped, and tumbled over the precipice. Screams of pain and terror filled the air, end quote. In the midst of the chaos, the Federals who tumbled down the steep bluff had nowhere to go but the swollen river, and there they found too few boats to carry them across. As a result, many of them drowned or were shot as they attempted to swim to Harrison's Island. Private William Thatcher of the 1st California swam for his life, as all around him he could hear, quote, balls going plug in the water, end quote. A soldier in the 15th Massachusetts said, quote, I never felt so near death, in the water, weak and out of breath, and balls whizzing, end quote. From atop the bluff, Confederate soldiers kept on firing until, as one of them recalled, quote, darkness shut in the bloody work, and night in her mercy drew her sable curtain over the dead. End quote. Some Federals, not wanting to chance swimming the river when so many bullets were whizzing about, tried to stealthily work their way up or down the river bank, but all except a few were captured by the Confederates. Many other Yankees simply took what cover they could at the base of the bluff and later surrendered. Over 500 Union prisoners were taken, including Major Paul Revere of the 20th Massachusetts, grandson of the Revolutionary War Patriot. Of the 1,700 Federals who crossed the river to Ball's Bluff, more than 50% became casualties, that is, dead, wounded, or missing, making the Confederate victory at Ball's Bluff as complete as any won by either side during the war. The Federal death toll was probably about 250, while the Confederates suffered fewer than 40 killed. 
Stone later described Ball's Bluff as being, quote, about equal to an unnoticed morning's skirmish in 1864, end quote. But Ball's Bluff was considered a significant fight in 1861, and it had serious consequences. For the Confederates, the battle was a splendid success, while for the Federals, the humiliating defeat evoked tears of grief from Abraham Lincoln for his friend Edward Baker. And among Republicans in Congress, Ball's Bluff provoked an angry search for a scapegoat. When Congress met in December, it established the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War to investigate the causes for defeat at Ball's Bluff and First Manassas. The committee's first victim would be Charles Stone, but we'll talk about that next week. At Ball's Bluff, the North had suffered another humiliating defeat, and a traumatic one. Baker's body lay in state in Washington, deeply mourned by his colleagues in the Senate, as well as by the President and his family. Though Baker was primarily responsible for the debacle at Ball's Bluff, he became an instant martyr for the Union's cause, and the Republicans who controlled Congress had no desire to smear one of their own who had fallen in battle, and someone who was one of the President's closest friends to boot. So as Rich just said, the search for a scapegoat will settle upon Charles Stone. Meanwhile, George McClellan scrambled to ensure that no blame for the disaster was attached to him, telling his wife that, quote, I am in no manner responsible for it, end quote. Indeed, McClellan will leverage the fallout from Ball's Bluff and the rising cries for positive action by the Army of the Potomac. McClellan will leverage them into the final moves in his campaign to undermine Winfield Scott and force the old general's retirement. After the president finally accepts Scott's offer to retire, on November 1st, Lincoln will name George McClellan to replace Scott in overall command of the Union's armies. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is A Little Short of Boats, The Battle of Balls Bluff and Edwards Ferry by James A. Morgan III. A Little Short of Boats is a really excellent tactical study of this small battle, so you guys will definitely appreciate it for that. And when you pick it up for your Civil War library, be sure to get the revised and expanded sesquicentennial edition. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. As we wrap things up, we'll remind you that the music you hear at the beginning and end of each episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we used it with the permission of Spiritwood Music, so we thank them for that. And then Rich and I also want to thank Rosa A. from Indiana for her donation to the podcast this past week. We appreciate that support, so thanks, Rosa. All right, so last but not least, I'll just give you guys a heads up that next week's show will be a short one. We'll look at what happened to General Stone and talk a bit about the Committee on the Conduct of the War, but one of us has an out-of-town trip coming up, so while you guys will get a new episode next week, it's going to be a short one. But thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. We do hope y'all will join us again next week, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.
We'll look at what happened to General Stone and talk uh, about the Committee on the Conduct of the War. But one of us has to, um, has to, um, be out of town. Be out of town. Yes. Yeah. So yes. while. <laughs> hey everyone. Here on May the 4th, welcome to a special Star Wars episode of our Civil War podcast. <laughs> I'm Rich. <laughs> <And> I'm Tracy. <laughs>